Alright, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today. May the Holy Spirit help us to open our minds and our hearts, and to inspire us for the purpose of hearing what you want us to hear. Hear us. Let us hear not only what is said, what is but the meaning behind it. So many people take the meanings and interpret them in today's everyday language and you can't always do that. So help us to really see the essence of what is being said and what is written. So we thank you for the time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. Jesus. How many were up? How many of you were at Mass this morning and actually heard the readings? Oh. Well, oh. <laughs> not too many. All right. Well, the purpose, the reason I asked that is that that wasn't the way I was going to start out this lecture. But the reason that I asked is that the gospel reading this morning was about being prepared, being prepared for whatever might come, but particularly uh, the end of our life. Of course, we never know when that is, and therefore being prepared all the time is rather important. But in the story of uh, the parables that uh, are in the gospel this morning. It talks about people being invited to uh, a person's house for some get-together, and a lot of people came. And after the doors were closed, uh, people still continued to come. And they would rap on the door, and uh, the Lord would, would come and say, uh, well, who are you? I don't know you. And the people would say, well, we did this and we did that and we did something else in your presence. And the Lord would say, I still don't know you. But the words in the gospel are, I don't know where you are from. And so many people will discard that because that's not important today as to where you're from. But at the time that the Gospels were written, that made up a great deal of who the person was because they judged the person not only by what they saw and what they heard, but where he was from. So the person the whole person was included in that. And the point is that we can go through a lot of the formalities of our faith, but if we don't have a personal relationship with Christ, if we don't know really who he is and what he means and what he means for us as individuals, then we're missing the point. And unfortunately, so many people hearing that gospel 
will miss the point or discard it because knowing where a person was from is not very important today. But it was at that time. And it's also a point in the same way that when names are used, names are very important in the Old Testament. Uh, and in well, the New Testament as well, but primarily in the Old Testament because a person is not only judged by his name, but the name, the word that he is being called means a great deal more than just the Joe or Mary or the Pete or Sally or whatever it is. We take today names for granted and names are put on little stickers or badges or whatever, and we go around sort of showing our name very casually. And yet in the Old Testament and the early days of the New Testament, that was not the case. People did not go around uh, exploiting just their name. Their name was guarded. And <clears throat> That's another way if Jesus would get to know you personally by your name and you be comfortable in talking to him by name, that cements a relationship and that is what is really important. In today's lecture, we're not getting into that kind of detail, but there are other kinds of details that we really need uh, to look at chapters 16 through 20 contain a variety of incidents not always related to each other but related in a way to what the Deuteronomists were trying to get the people of that time period the 9th and 8th centuries BC to see where they were profaning the teachings of Moses and the teachings of Judaism or God through Judaism. Well, and that is what we're going to be studying today. They, on the surface, probably look like, oh, um, you know, well, that's the way it was at that time, and it's not important. But it is important, really, because though the, some of the situations may be unusual, for us uh, in today's society, we are doing many of the same things today that these people did way back 3,000 years ago. So let us begin with chapter 16. Here we have in this chapter three different feast days, three different very important feast days to the people of that time period. And what we want to do is to take a look at why are they important and how were they celebrated and how did the people neglect celebrating in, in the way that they should have and what does that mean to us today? Observe the month of Abraham by keeping the Passover of the Lord. Now, Abbot was a 
period of time um, in the spring, and it was relating to a spring harvest. Since it was the month of Abbot that he brought you by night out of Egypt, you shall offer the Passover sacrifice from your flock. In the springtime, of course, that is why we celebrate Passover or we celebrate Easter, Good Friday and Easter, in late March or early April. It is at the same time as this feast was to be offered. You shall offer the Passover sacrifice from your flock or your herd to the Lord your God in the place which he chooses as dwelling place of his name. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. For seven days you shall eat it without un, with only unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, that you remember as long as you live the day of your departure from the land of Egypt. For it, in frightening haste, you left the land of Egypt. Nothing leavened may be found in all of your territory for seven days, and none of the meat which you sacrificed on the evening of the first day shall be kept overnight for the next day. This is one of the most sacred of the Jewish feast days, Passover. But they celebrate it not like we do Good Friday. We, they celebrate it as a joyous feast with the Seder service and usually a lamb, or in today's society, and I understand that because lamb is a little more expensive uh, than it was at this time, certainly, uh, that turkey is often used today. Well, regardless of what, uh, it, what food is used at a Seder service, there are certain requirements of specific foods and then anything else uh, that the host or hostess wishes to add uh, may be done. But certain foods are still to be observed because what they are doing is taking into consideration the whole idea of the escape or the release of the Israelites from Egypt at the time of Moses. And remember, it was after the last plague the death of the last uh, of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, but not the Israelites, that they were to be released because the Pharaoh thought, well, if their God can bring upon the death of the firstborn, what more could he do? And so he released the Israelites and allowed them to go. And they were to go in haste, and therefore... They were to not wait until the bread that was always baked in the evening and let to rise overnight and then baked in the morning. Well, I should say it was prepared in the evening, but not baked until the morning because it used the nighttime to, to rise. And that was in haste, so they didn't have the time for that. 
The idea of unleavened bread was a separate feast uh, for the Jewish people at some time before that. Uh, but they are often combined in a way because it was the unleavened bread that they were to take with them in their escape uh, from Egypt. <clears throat> we today celebrate something similar in Holy Week. On Good Friday, we often will uh, prepare a special meal, generally containing fish, because the rule of the church is that no meat is to be eaten on Ash Wednesday or <clears throat> Good Friday during Lent. And do we really observe that? Do we really observe it with some understanding of why? And can we explain that to anyone else? So, Passover is an extremely important and probably the most important feast day in the Jewish faith. It also has another requirement, which I'll bring up in a few minutes. <coughs> Excuse me. You may not sacrifice the... Uh, the Passover in just any of your communities which the Lord your God gives you, only at the place which he chooses as the dwelling place of his name. Now, that was a contentious requirement, but it did not come into common usage until the time of King David, which is, you know, roughly 500 years after Moses. And so, uh, obviously, Moses could not have given this. Remember, this is part of a speech given or written by the Deuteronomist and using the voice of Moses, but it was not written by Moses nor actually prepared or spoken by Moses. You may not sacrifice the Passover at just any of the communities. This, again is one of the sacred feasts that the people have to or are required way back, not now, but way back in uh, the early days of Judaism to uh, celebrate it not in their own homes but in uh, Jerusalem. Well, that was not made a rule until, as I said, originally by King David and then later followed, not strictly because after the separation of the two uh, of Israel into two different parts, the north and the south, that sort of uh, gave way. But the Deuteronomists are trying to get the people back into looking at that uh, as a very important requirement. And it goes on then to talk about uh, the preparing of the uh, the bread to be used, and it was to be the unleavened bread rather than the uh, usual raised bread. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh there shall be a solemn meeting in honor of the Lord your God. On that day you shall not do any sort of work. This again is a seven-day uh, 
period of celebration of the Passover. The Feast of Weeks. This is another one. Do you know what Feast of Weeks are called today? Anyone know what it's called in the Catholic or the Christian faith? Pentecost, yes. Pentecost. All right. You shall count off seven weeks, 49 days plus one, always plus one. And that would be 50 days. That is what the word Pentecost means. 50 days after what? After Passover. Remember, this is a Jewish feast. So 50 days after Passover. Now, the church has used many of the same days because it helps us to bring about a remembrance of the connection between Judaism and Christianity. But the Feast of Weeks and Passover is more important for the purpose of what? The descent of the Holy Spirit on all mankind. Pentecost is the time of the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and all mankind. Remember, there were 120 or so people in that upper room when the <coughs> Spirit descended on the apostles and all of those uh, who were there. That re represents the Holy Spirit descending upon the people for all mankind. And it is also now considered the time uh, where the, pastor, the Holy Spirit takes up his particular role in God's plan of salvation. As I mentioned to you many times before, right? God's plan of salvation involves all three of the persons of the Trinity. And after Christ rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit then came down and uh, took up his particular time and role in God's plan of salvation. And that happened on Pentecost. Pentecost is considered the birth date of the church and the birthday of the church. Any questions on that? So it's something that, you know, you should keep in mind because it's very important to not only the Jewish people, but to Christians as well. It's often called the Feast of Weeks, but we call it the Feast of Pentecost, the same time and the same day. I'll just read, repeat some of this here. You shall count off seven weeks, computing them from the day when the sickle is first put to the standing grain. You shall then keep the Feast of Weeks in honor of the Lord your God. At the measure of your own free will offering shall be in proportion to the blessed blessing of the Lord your God. 
and has been stowed upon you. In the place which the Lord your God chooses as the dwelling place of his name, you shall make merry again. This is one of the feast days that the Jewish people had to go to uh, Jerusalem. Remember uh, in the story of how Jesus got lost or left behind in the temple when he was, you know, an early teenager. This is what Jesus and Mary and Joseph were doing as they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feast days. It didn't say which one, but we can kind of assume it was this one here. Now, actually, Jesus didn't get lost. That was part uh, of his role in God's plan of salvation. The Feast of Booths. The word booth is often used in place of the word tent in Old Testament writings. Um, It is a translation that is a little foreign to us. We don't think of booths in the same way of tents. Usually we think of booths as something at a carnival or charity event event where they're selling something or whatever. Uh, But what they're celebrating here is the fall harvest. Whereas the Feast of Weeks was actually celebrating, among other things, the spring harvest. The Feast of Booths celebrates the fall harvest. And we have a similar, or used to have, remember the ember days that we used to celebrate uh, years ago before Vatican II? Okay. Uh, That was also to celebrate, in a way, the fall harvest, because it generally happened around the middle of September. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths for seven days, and when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and winepress, that is the harvest, you shall make merry at your feast together with your son and daughter, your male and female slave, and also the Levite, the alien, the orphan, and the widow who belong to your community. That is some of the... um, not outcast necessarily, but those people who have been neglected by society in general. For seven days you shall celebrate uh, this pilgrim feast in honor of the Lord your God, in the place which he chooses, since the Lord your God has blessed you in all your crops and in all your undertakings, and you shall do not but make merit. In other words, blessings and including blessing the Lord. Three times a year then, every male among you shall appear before the Lord in Jerusalem. Although it's not mentioned here, that's implied. In the place which he chooses as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. All right, three times. No one shall appear before the Lord empty-handed, but each of you, with as much as you as he can, in proportion to the blessings which the Lord your God has bestowed on you. Uh, 
So this is something that is very important, and it's in here, here because it has been neglected by the people in the ninth and eighth century. And that is why the Deuteronomists are trying to get the people to remember the importance of these particular uh, celebrations, because they were important not only to the culture, uh, but part of their religion. Now, we're going to get into a number of what appears to be unrelated uh, subjects here, but again, it's the Deuteronomists who are trying to get the people to remember who they are and why they are because of God. You shall appoint judges and officials throughout your tribes to administer true justice for the people in all the communities which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not distort justice. You must be impartial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes even to the wise and twists the words even to the, of the just. Justice and justice alone shall be your aim, that you may have life and many and may possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant a sacred pole of any kind of wood beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you will, you will build. Nor shall you erect a pillar, a sacred pillar, such as the Lord your God detests. These were items that were common to the pagan countries and the peoples surrounding Israel. And there was a great deal of interaction, intermarriage, etc., etc., of the people, and this is what the Deuteronomists were trying uh, to remind the people who was against the laws of Moses and against the teachings of Christ. So, you know, to us, putting a pole someplace had very little meaning unless you had a flag or something at the top of it. Uh, but that was not the case here with these people. They were violating, they were profaning uh, the laws of Christ, or I'm sorry, of God. If there is found, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Uh, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God from the herd or from the flock an animal with any serious defect. That would be an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember, quite often, the sacrificial lamb to be used at the Passover had to be an unblemished lamb. That word is often used, and you're all familiar with that. Uh, now, that doesn't mean dirty. All animals are dirty in some way. Obviously, they live off the land. What is being mentioned here is a lame or a sick or, or some deformed animal. It's not to be offered just to get rid of them. Uh, and yet, that was what was actually happening. Is that they were getting rid of uh, some of their animals that had problems one way or the other uh, and said, oh, well, they, you know, these will be 
part of the sacrifice. Well, that is what here is being condemned. If there is found among you in any one of the communities which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who does evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgresses his covenant by serving other gods or by worshiping the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of the sky against my command. And if on being informed of it, you find by careful investigation that it is true and an established fact that this abomination has been committed in Israel, you shall bring the man or woman who has done excuse me who has done the evil deed out of your city gates and stone him or her to death. The testimony of two or three witnesses is required for putting a person to death. No one shall be put to death on the testimony of, un, of only one witness. Why? The testimony of two or three witnesses required for putting a person to death. No one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Again, because it could have, you know, it's him or against her. Or him against him, whatever. Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's go back a little bit. The testimony of two or three witnesses required for putting a person to death. No one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. At the execution, uh, let me stop there for a minute. Remember when the woman was brought, woman caught in adultery was brought to Christ and by some of the uh, Jewish leaders and they were testing him to see what he would say because of of this law here and what did Jesus say he who is without sin let him throw the first stone so he's going way beyond this the woman caught in adultery was not really uh, prosecuted by the group or by Christ uh, and he put down the whole idea by putting it back on the shoulders of the accusers. Yeah. He who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. Connie, didn't you give me the, wasn't you the one that gave me the little stone one time? Yeah. Uh, Connie, years ago, many years ago, gave me a little stone about so big where this is engraved, this statement is great engraved on it. I still have that stone. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a keepsake, a reminder. Uh, don't accuse anybody unless you're sure of all of the facts. Okay. If in your uh, own community there is a case at issue, which proves too complicated for you to decide in a matter of bloodshed or of civil rights 
or personal injury. You shall then go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses, to the Levitical priests, the Levites, the Levitical priests, or to the judge who is in office at that time. Remember, this was a time of, of transitions. There were so many Levites that they not all, they didn't all have uh, this power that they once had in a much earlier time period. They shall study the case and then hand down to you their decisions according to the decision that they give you in the place which the Lord chooses. And this would be Jerusalem again. You shall act being careful to do exactly as they direct. You shall carry out the directions they give you and the verdict they pronounce for you without turning aside to the right or to the left from the decision that uh, they hand down to you. Any man who has the insolence to refuse to listen to the priest who officiates there in the ministry of the Lord your God or to the judge shall die. Thus shall you purge the evil from your midst and all the people on hearing of it shall fear and never again be so insolent. Well, there's a lot of little problems within that. Uh, I'm sure that that was probably more confusing than it was uh, educational. The king. When you have come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and have occupied it and settled in it, should you then decide to have a king? Now see, Moses couldn't and wouldn't have said this. Because at that time, there was no such thing as a king except God himself at the time of Moses. So obviously, here's one of those things that proves that Deuteronomy was not written uh, by Moses. You shall then decide to have a king over you like the surrounding nations. You shall set the man over you as your king whom the Lord your God chooses. Remember in the case of <coughs> Samuel being told to go and anoint somebody as king. Uh, he anointed Saul because Saul was a good-looking and big, strong guy, and uh, also fairly wealthy, etc. Uh, well, Saul didn't turn out to be uh, what God wanted, and but he did reign for a number of years. We're not certain, but it was quite a number of years. And then he started to turn against God and the rulings of God and his people. And therefore, Saul was then sent out to find a, a replacement. And that is how he chose uh, David from among the seven brothers of Jesse. Let's see. You shall set the man over you as your king, whom the Lord your God chooses. In this case, God actually chose David by an indication and inspiration to Samuel. 
he whom you set over you as king must be your kinsman. <laughs> your kinsman. A foreigner who is not kin of yours uh, may not, you may not set over you, but be, but he shall not have a great number of horses, nor shall he make the people go back again to Egypt to require them against the Lord's warning that you must never go back that way. Neither shall you, he, neither shall he, that is the king, have a great number of wives. Well, that was one of the problems of Solomon, as we all know. Okay. See, what is being said here has kind of a twofold meaning. It is not just uh, reminding the people of certain rules and regulations. It is actually criticizing the people of the northern kingdom because they were doing many of these things uh, that were being condemned here. Uh, let's see neither shall he have a great number of lives lest his heart be strange nor shall he accumulate a vast amount of silver or gold and of course uh, Solomon's known for that uh, when he is enthroned in his kingdom he shall have a copy of this law made from the scroll that is in the custody of the Levitic <coughs> he shall keep it with him and read it all the days of his life. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to heed and fulfill all the words of this law and these statutes. Let him not become estranged from his countrymen through pride, nor turn aside um, to the right or to the left from these commandments. And then his descendants will enjoy a long reign in Israel. Well, his descendants didn't enjoy a long reign because each one got worse than the previous. Again. <laughs> All right, maybe we can talk afterwards. All right, yeah. It, it is confusing because, again, these are words put in the mouth of Moses by a group, small group of people writing this three or four hundred years, well, actually, uh, well, seven or eight hundred years after Moses. Right? It's like, let me think of a, a good analogy here. <coughs> Supposing somebody took the writings of Abraham Lincoln and tried to impose them from a uh, political party that they are establishing for the next election. All right? And they're using the words of Abraham Lincoln 
in many ways, and I won't repeat a lot of that, uh, I'll say from the Gettysburg Address that might, you see, it would be confusing and you would have to stop and think that these, this is not written by Moses, but by people who are living in a much later time period which much, with much, many different experiences. And so it's, it is a difficult book to read. And if you read it just uh, face value without understanding all of that, then you're not getting the real point. And it would sound like a lot of gibberish or it would actually be conflicting with Exodus and um, Numbers and Leviticus. But it isn't because it was written much later. Let's go on. <coughs> prophets. Now again, Moses could not talk about prophets because there weren't any. Let me just stop for a minute here. The whole idea of prophets didn't come into practical everyday usage and they were brought in by God himself for the very reason that this book is being written. The people were not doing what Moses commanded them to do. They were not doing what God commanded them to do. And so rather than condemning them right then and there and wiping them out, God brought the prophets in. There were 15 literary prophets, that is, prophets who actually wrote out and left instructions behind, and there were several other prophets like Elijah and Elisha who did not leave any written uh, works of any kind. But God brought those prophets in to counteract the evils that were going on at this later time period. But the people did not like what the prophets had to say, and almost all of them were killed by their own people. And so, because they were not being taken serious, the prophets died out after the Babylonian exile ended. There were a couple that remained, but with very little having to say. So, the whole idea of prophets uh, was something that was brought in at a much later time period than certainly Moses. Uh, and they lasted for about 500 years and then disappeared. Who are the prophets of today? Anybody? The word prophet does not mean somebody who tells the future. That is a, something that has been ginned up much later. The prophets were somebody who spoke in the person of Jesus. I'm sorry, in the, post, in the person of God the Father. Very important that you remember that. The prophets were somebody who spoke by the influence uh, and sometimes direct commands of the Father. But once 
they were totally ignored, it was like God saying, well, why bother? Uh, they're not obeying them. Anyways, the poor guys are all being killed, so, you know, why bother? They did the same thing with Christ himself. They didn't like what he had to say. That is the rulers. Okay. But let's talk about that as it is in here. <coughs> when you come into the land, land again, as I said, is often mentioned because that is the one thing that holds all of this together. When you can come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of the people that are there. Let there not be found among you anyone who emulates his son or daughter in the emulates, in other words, slaughters or offers in a sacrifice, his son or daughter in fire, nor a fortune teller, soothsayer, charmer, diviner, uh, or caster of spell, nor one who consults ghosts and spirits. Oh boy. Halloween is close. Yeah. Or seeks oracles from the dead. Anyone who does such things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of such abominations, the Lord your God is driving these nations out of your way. You, however, must be uh, altogether sincere toward the Lord your God. Again, emphasizing sincere because this is what was lacking by the people at that time. Though these nations whom you are to dispose listen to their soothsayers and fortune tellers, the Lord your God will not permit you to do so. But, and listen to this one, a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kinsmen. To him you shall listen. This is exactly what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb, that is Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not again hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see the great fire any more, lest we die. And the Lord said to me, Lord said to Moses, this was well said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their kinsmen, and will put my words into his mouth, and he shall tell them all that I command. Now who is that? Jesus is the only one that could fulfill that particular prophecy. And this was taken very seriously by the people. This is one thing that at least got through to them. But, unfortunately, at the time of Christ, they felt that this was referring to a human individual who would then rout the Romans and again make the Jewish people or Israel or Judah, as it was called at the time, uh, back into a sovereign country of its own. 
And that is not what God intended. And that is why Jesus was crucified. Because he didn't tell the people what they wanted to hear. He didn't do for them what they wanted, and that was expel the Romans. And that was the main reason that he was crucified. But that was something that the Jewish people constantly looked forward. That was the beginning of their idea of a Messiah. Someone that would free them from all their ills. Okay? But what they misunderstood was I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their kinsmen, and will put my words into their mouth. He shall tell them all that I command. And he did, but he didn't tell them all that they wanted. And that they totally overlooked the fact that Jesus was God, and there was many signs that pointed to that and they just condemned him because he didn't tell them what they wanted to do. If any man will not listen to my words which he speaks in my name I myself will make him answer for it. But if a prophet presumes to speak in my name an oracle that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, he shall die. Now, this actually did happen. Remember, Jezebel started a school for prophets, but she would tell them what they were to tell the people. And, of course, if you read the second book of Kings, uh, you know that Jezebel died a very gruesome death. If you say to yourself, how can we recognize an oracle which the Lord has spoken? Know that even though a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if his oracle is not fulfilled or verified, it is an oracle which the Lord did not speak. Amen. If you don't get what you want, wasn't meant for you. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and shall not, and you shall not uh, fear of him. Okay. Any questions about that? Yes. Any other questions? Uh, let's go on to chapter nineteen. Cities of refuge. I almost hate to talk about this particular chapter because we have today sanctuary cities. And uh, there's a lot of pros and cons regarding that. And this, of course, is where it comes from. When the Lord your God removes the nations whose land he is giving you, and you take their place 
and are settled in their cities and houses. You shall set apart three cities in the land which the Lord your God has given you to occupy. You shall thereby divide into three regions the land which the Lord your God will give you as a heritage, and so arrange the routes that every homicide will be able to find a refuge. That doesn't make sense. Um, let's go back up. You shall thereby divide into three regions the land which the Lord your God will give you as a heritage. So, and so arrange the routes that every homicide will be able to find a refuge. It is in the following, thank you, it is in the following case that a homicide may take refuge in such a place to save his life when someone unwittingly kills his neighbor to whom he had previously borne no malice. <coughs> well, let's say accidental. Yeah. An accidental death by someone and the person causing the accidental death may seek refuge by fleeing to one of these designated cities. Yes, yes. The word homicide should be homicider. Uh, and that would have been a little clearer. Yes. For example, if he goes with his neighbor to a forest to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, it, the head of the axe flies off of the handle and hits his neighbor uh, a mortal blow. He may take refuge in one of these cities to save his life. Should the distance be too great, the avenger of blood may be may in the heat of his anger pursue the homicider, and I'm adding that, uh, and overtake him and strike him dead, even though he does not merit death, since he had previously borne the slain man no malice. That is why I order you to set apart three cities. But if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your father and gives you all the land he promised, your father's... <coughs> all the land he promised your fathers he would give you. In the event that you carefully observe all of these commandments which I enjoin on you today, loving the Lord your God and ever walking in his ways, then add three cities to these three. Thus in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, innocent blood will not be shed and you will not become guilty of blood However, if someone lies in wait for his neighbor out of hatred for him and raises up against him, strikes him um, mortally, and then takes refuge in one of these uh, cities, the elder of his own uh, city shall send for him and have him taken and, there shall, and shall hand him over to 
be slain by the avenger of blood. Do not look on him with pity, but purge from Israel the stain of shedding innocent blood that you may prosper. Well, I tried to do some research on this, and they do mention three cities, but a subnote says no one knows where these three cities are, or ever were, or if they ever were. So we don't know whether this ever took place or not. But this is where the idea of the sanctuary cities that we have today, and of course I think certain people have made the whole state of California a sanctuary city in a way. <laughs> uh, it's kind of interesting to note though that I personally don't believe in sanctuary cities uh, because it would be hard to define who has a right to be there and who does not. And it would take far more than just the usual legal process that we have most anywhere. You shall not move your neighbor's landmarks erected by your forefathers in the heritage you received in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to occupy. Now, that may seem unimportant, but it was very important to the people of his time and even people up into uh, the first part of this century. Well, no, I mean first part of the 20th century. I remember my mother uh, talking about the defining marks of their farm. And they said this was a common way of indicating where their land uh, ended and the neighbor's land began. They would collect stones from their yard or their fields or acreage, whatever it might be, and at the corner, wherever the neighbor's property ended, they would pile stones in a certain way to indicate whose land that was. I don't know if you all can see that. Um, and the neighbor then would do the same over here. So this land would be to the neighbors and this would be somebody else's. Well, uh, and then to remove those would be confusing to a lot of people and cause a lot of problems. So this, in a way, makes sense. But why it needs to be in here as part of a, a religious observation is a little strange. But then again, many of these things do not have any great relationship to each other. One witness alone shall not take the stand against a man in regard to any crime or any offense which he may be guilty, of which he may be guilty. 
A judicial fact shall be established only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, we talked about that earlier. <coughs> if it on, excuse me, I'm sorry, this thing is still getting me. If an unjust witness takes the stand against a man to accuse him of a defection from the law, the two parties in the dispute shall appear before the Lord in the presence of the priests or judges in office at that time. And if after a thorough investigation the judges find that the witness is a false witness and has accused his kinsmen falsely, you shall do him as he planned to do to his kinsmen. Thus shall you purge the evil from your midst. So well, it's not much different than our legal system today. Um, a little crude, but nevertheless. The rest on hearing of it shall fear and never again do a thing so evil among you. Do not look on such a man with pity. For life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Now, that is not meaning that if a person is wounded on the foot, that you're to cut the perpetrator off, perpetrator's foot off. What this really means is that you are to go no further. That the punishment due to a crime, once convicted, his punishment can be no greater than the original crime. Now, of course, that might be difficult to judge or duplicate, but nevertheless, that's where it means. It doesn't mean if, if you uh, have your tooth knocked out, uh, somebody can go and, uh, you know, not the per perpetrator's tooth out. No. That's not, not what it means. <coughs> Let's go on to chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies, as you see horses and chariots and an army greater than your own, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God has brought you up from the land of Egypt and will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and say to the soldiers, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Be not weak-hearted or afraid. Be neither alarmed nor frightened by them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight uh, for you against your enemies and give you victory. As anyways, you know, it's, it's a way of calling upon the Lord whenever we go into a dangerous situation, regardless of what it might be. Then the officials shall say to the soldiers, Is there anyone who has built a new house and not yet had the house warming? Let him return home, lest he die in battle. Can you imagine? 
you have ten guys there going out to battle, and eight of them raise their hands. Oh, I got a housewarming. <laughs> some of some of this, you know, is a, a, a little um, disturbing in a way. Uh, let's see. Let him return home, lest he die in battle, and another uh, delicate and another uh, dedicate. Is there anyone who has planted a vineyard and never yet enjoyed his fruit? Let him return home, lest he die in battle, and another enjoy his fruits in his stead. Is there anyone who has betrothed a woman and now taken her as his wife? Let him return home, lest he die in battle, and another take her uh, to wife. Oh, wait here. <laughs> well, you know, as I said right at the beginning, some of this really doesn't fit us today, but we have to understand the purpose of what this, how this book uh, was written, or why it was written. When the officials had uh, finished speaking to the soldiers, military officers shall be appointed over the army. Well, uh, okay, what's left? Uh, no. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it, it makes sense, really. And you've got a point, Jennifer. Certain people, you know, not everybody is fit to go into battle, obviously. Uh, and this is listing some of the reasons that a deferment could be granted. And it's making it legal, uh, you know, in a religious sense. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's just common sense, really. Not everybody is fit to go into battle. And you might have uh, a weak link, so to speak, who could ruin the whole problem. Take, for example, what happened just here a couple nights ago when they caught this head of ISIS over there. It took uh, a great number of people and airplanes and helicopters and so forth and so on. Well, you know, one bad apple could have spoiled the whole thing. <laughs> so, it, it, it makes sense, but the way it's written here, you know, it's a, a little amusing at times, too. <laughs> When you go out to war against your enemies and you see houses and chariots and an army greater than your own, do not be afraid for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall say, and we've read this a few minutes ago, so let's not go on. All right, let's go on to 10. When you march up to attack a city, first offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to your terms of peace and opens its gates to you, all the people to be found in it shall serve 
serve you in forced labor. But if it refuses to make peace with you and instead offers you battle, lay siege to it. And, and your Lord your God But if it refuses to make peace with you and instead offers you battle, lay siege to it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put aside every male in it to the sword. But the women and the children and livestock and all else in that uh, that is worth plundering, you may take as your booty and you may use this plunder of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Well, uh, we had a lot of that uh, in the time of Joshua, when Joshua came into the promised land for the first time. <coughs> and this is how you should deal with any city at a considerable distance from you, which does not belong to the people of the land. But in the cities of those nations which the Lord your God is giving you as your heritage, you shall not leave a single soul alive. And that is hard for us to understand uh, coming from a religious book. You must doom them all, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Prisites, etc., etc. And the Lord your God has commanded you lest they teach you to make any such abominable offerings as they make to their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. <clears throat> Trees of a besieged city. When you are at war with a city and have to lay siege to it for a long time before you capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by putting it, put an axe to it. You may eat their fruit, but you may not cut down the tree. After all, are the trees the field? Are the trees of the field men? In other words, the trees are not guilty, so don't cut them down. Uh, that they should be included in your siege. However, those trees which you know are not fruit trees, you may destroy, cutting them down to build siege works with which to reduce the city that is resisting you. Well, I suppose that makes sense in a way. Trees that are producing fruit, well, you're going to need those anyways, so keep them. Others you may need for various ramparts or whatever. It seems, in a way, uh, almost a waste of time for us to talk about these things today. But again, we have to keep in mind why they were written. Not so much what is written, but why it was written. And that was to convince the people of the time to turn from their evil ways. Because, obviously, all of these things were being uh, profaned by the people of the North uh, Kingdom of Israel. And it was that reason why they were wiped out by the Assyrians. 
who conquered them in 722 BC. Gene? Uh, we've got the people who came through the army here talking to people in the north. What happened in the south? Is that the second order? It was pretty much the same, but a little bit behind. As I've mentioned before, the Deuteronomists were totally rejected by the people of the north. And when the Assyrians came in and conquered the north, the Deuteronomists took their writings to the south and tried to convince the people of the same, for the same reasons it was going on there and saying, look, look what happened to the north. But the people of the South didn't accept them either. And so, in a way, the Deuteronomists died out because the writings were sort of uh, <coughs> pigeonholed in the temple in Jerusalem for over a hundred years. And because the same things happened in the South, they were the Deuteronomist writings were recognized finally by Josiah and he tried to implement them but with the same uh, results. And so the people of the south were overrun by the Babylonians in 587 BC but a group of people took the writings, particularly this book, uh, or at least chapters 12 through 26, <clears throat> which is the main uh, second speech, uh, main part of the second speech, uh, to Babylon with them. And during that time in Babylon, they were not uh, slaves in the way we think of slaves. They were given homes and businesses and jobs to do, etc., etc., and therefore they did have certain rights and freedoms. But one thing they didn't have was a right to practice their own faith. So they developed the houses of study, and what they studied was this book of Deuteronomy. And they finally began to realize because they couldn't understand why God would let them down and have the Assyrians rule run over the north and now the Babylonians, Babylonians run over the, the south. How could God do that when he promised that he was going to take care of them? Well, they found out that they weren't keeping their part of the covenant, the agreement. And it was through the efforts of Ezra, and we're going to get into uh, studying a little bit more about Ezra in next week or the following week, because it's important to understand what happened in Babylon uh, when the people began to study this book. And it was through the, the efforts of uh, the priestly group that developed because there was no one else there in charge uh, that the book of Deuteronomy became so important and the priestly group 
uh, headed by Ezra, uh, not only took this back with them when they finally were released from Israel in 539 BC, and started going back. They didn't all go back at one time. There were two or three different caravans that moved uh, over a period of a little less than a hundred years uh, back to Judah, and that's where they were, began to be called Judahites. And eventually, that broke down uh, in more in later times to Jew. Uh, and that began to be straightened up. So there's a whole history there that we'll, we will talk about in the next few weeks, uh, stemming from the results of their time in Bethlehem. I don't think they ever really got more civilized than they no, not even today. I don't think they're any different today than they were uh, two or three thousand years ago. Let us then with a prayer. Lord, we've covered a lot of lesser important things today, which is obvious. But they were important to the people of the time period. And therefore, to truly understand uh, the essence of the book of Deuteronomy, we must understand why it was written and to whom it was addressed. So we ask that we today examine our life and the life of society in general to see that we are not much different today. We have forgotten you in so many ways. Our electronic devices has taken us away from worrying about our life, wondering about how things fit. We are told through our computers what to do and how to do it, and we live a life of electronics rather than a life of faith and hope. So help us, dear Lord to get back on the right path that leads to you and only to you and to heaven. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.